Thank you, Patrick. It's nothing but the blood of Jesus, huh? Amen. Well, I'm looking out and seeing some faces that it's so good to have back with us today. We've had some folks with some health issues in recent months. Lawanda, it's great to have you back with us today. What a blessing. Uh, great to look over here and see Dennis Ladner. Uh, Dennis has been gone the last several months after a major surgery. Dennis, great to have you back with us today. Uh, awesome to have you back. Others of you that may have been missing with health issues and whatnot, great to have you back. And the Lopez family, what a blessing to have you guys here. Just a little bit later today at 1230, uh, we'll be having a celebration of life for Fernando. And uh, all of you are invited that are available 1230 with a catered lunch afterwards. And so uh, you guys are in our prayers. We love you. And uh, it's going to be good this afternoon to celebrate Fernando's life. Well, I want to give you a few updates on uh, Impact Christian Church this morning. Uh, we're going to try to do this on a regular basis. It's hard to believe that we are just 12 weeks away. 12, day, 12 weeks from today, we are doing our official launch of Impact Christian Church in our new location for Sunday mornings. They're basically on the corner of Mojave Drive in Elevado at the new uh, Ralph Baker Elementary School. Amazing uh, facility we've talked to you about over the last few weeks. And as we have these updates, I want to share them with you. And so we've been working for a while with a really good graphic artist uh, to uh, put together our new logo for the church. And we're going to go ahead and put it on the screen for you. This is not the greatest resolution because our projector is not very good. But this is our logo for Impact Christian Church. We looked at 50 different logo options for the church. And we were really wrestling back and forth with what we really want to communicate to anyone driving by seeing that sign, anyone that sees it on a flyer, anyone that catches it at our website. And so one thing that we really liked about this is how we had a simple arrow pointing to the eye. Many of you know that uh, one of the t-shirt companies that's been really popular in recent years, one of the Christian companies, is He is Greater Than I. There's that very simple message that Jesus Christ is greater than I am. And so one of the things that has been very common in recent years is for those, uh, whether it's with a church or even with a business like Apple, to recognize that we live in such a complex society when it comes to the weekend when people are looking to go to a church, we want to simply communicate what God has called us to do. And so that simple message, he is greater than I, kind of resonates as we look at this. And then secondly, if you go back to that, that logo there in the prior slide, also it communicates greater impact. Isn't that why we're moving in the first place? To have a greater impact in our community. We want to have a greater impact as we share the gospel. Don't we want to see more people get saved? When it comes to discipling new Christians and new believers and see them grow in their faith, don't we want to have a greater impact seeing Christians grow in their faith? And when it comes to serving our community and going onto the streets and making a tangible difference in the lives of people in the city of Victorville and in the Victor Valley, don't we want to carry a greater impact? So I love that that simple greater than sign communicates this. There's something else pretty exciting about the simplicity of this logo. I want you to go to that next one. We've been working this last week with the graphic artist, uh, the one after that, DJ. We've been working on how we can take that simple logo and tweak it just a little bit for our different ministries at the church. And so here's what we're working on. Once again, the colors aren't great because of the resolution of our projector. But going with kind of a lime green on kids, you take that second line and make it pop. And you notice even subtle things like the rectangle around the logo. It looks like a kid maybe with a pencil or crayon kind of went around the perimeter. And so it ties into that logo, but at the same time lets us know 
Whoever's looking at that T-shirt, whoever's looking at that webpage, we are here in children's ministry to impact kids for Jesus Christ. Amen? And so we're fiddling with this a little bit, working with the graphic artists on that, but I'm pretty excited uh, about how things are going in that regard. This Tuesday, uh, our uh, media team, uh, Javier and also our worship leader, Patrick, and several of us are going to be meeting with a consultant over at the campus. We're going to be doing a tour of the campus once again, and that consultant via Skype or FaceTime will be walking through with us and giving us some counsel on how we can get everything that we need for the sound system, for the lighting, for the children's ministry, all of those different needs, how we can get all that set up. So we're not buying anything we don't need, and we're not forgetting anything that we do. And so we are making some great progress on that, and I'm super excited about next Sunday, we're going to have that impact ministry fair right here after the service in the Fellowship Hall, and we're going to have tables set up, and you'll get to see all the many different opportunities there are to volunteer as part of our relaunch of First Christian Church as Impact Christian Church. And so there's opportunities really for everyone. Uh, even if you are you know, physically unable to come any other day of the week but Sunday, there are opportunities to pray for our church. There are opportunities to do things from the comfort of your own home. There really is opportunity as much as you want to be a part of it. And so we'll have that impact ministry fair. And during the service, I'm going to also share some updates with you that I think you'll like. It's a little early to share them with you today. Uh, we're going to be meeting with the elders on Tuesday. We're going to have that tour on Tuesday. And so I'll be in a better place to share a few more things with you next Sunday. But don't miss it. Next Sunday, Impact Ministry Fair. And I hope you're getting excited about this because we're just 12 weeks away. And you know what? We'll actually be over there in 10 weeks. Ten weeks from this Sunday, we'll do what's called a soft launch. We're going to have a couple Sundays over there without announcing it to the community so we can work out some of the kinks and make sure we've got everything ready with the setup and breakdown and how we do a service in a new location. And so we're really just ten weeks away from being in that new location on a Sunday morning. Keep us in prayer. Please, every day, be praying for our church. Be praying for our leaders as we busily make preparations. Be praying that God would raise up the volunteers. And something you may not pray for on a regular basis Please pray for those who are not yet here. Amen? Because we're moving over there to reach our community better. If it was just about us, we'd stay put here. But we're there to reach those that aren't here yet. And so please be praying for those that will come on that first Sunday and in the months that follow because we truly want to impact them for Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Well, I need you to have your Bibles handy and also your message notes from the bulletin. We're going to be in Luke chapter 11 today, starting in verse 29. If you're using one of those blue Bibles from the rack in front of you, you'll find it on page 1030-1030. Today's message, the greatest sign you'll ever see. As you're flipping open there, about 10 years ago, uh, when I was living in Victorville, I at the time was living about eight minutes from the church here, over off of El Abado, interestingly, just a block from where the new location is going to be. And so quite often I would take El Abado to that little connector street, Clovis. You remember some of you where Clovis is? It's a little connector street between El Abado and Village Drive. And so it kind of cuts off the corner. It's a quick way to get to that new location from here or from Village Drive. So anyways, it was one of those seasons where I was feeling a little bit stale in my Christian walk. I was feeling a little bit distant from the Lord. And to be honest with you, I was really struggling with my ministry here at FCC. And so I remember one morning so clearly I was driving to the church office, and, and I was coming down El Avado. I turned on to Clovis, was making my way to Village Drive. And as I was there in my car by myself, I cried out to God in prayer. 
And I said, God, I need a sign. I, I need you to speak to me, God, because I don't know if, I, where I, if I'm where I'm supposed to be. God, I need some hope. God, I need a sign that I'm where you want me to be. And as I cried out to God, I, my car came to a stop at that stop sign there at the intersection of Clovis and Elevato. And I just cried out to, for God to give me a sign. And there at that intersection, I looked across the intersection, and I saw this. I looked up and saw across the intersection one of our FCC signs that said, There is hope. And I laughed. And I looked up to God and said, you did it again. I had just asked for a sign, and this silly sign, I had asked one of the men from our church to put it at that intersection months earlier because I wanted people driving by and stopping at that stop sign to see that there is hope in First Christian Church because Jesus Christ is at the heart of First Christian Church. And I want them to see that Jesus Christ can bring hope to their hopelessness. And at the time that I asked that leader from the church to put this up at that intersection, I didn't think in a million years that that sign would be for me a few months later. But isn't it amazing how God works? He let me know there is hope. He gave me the sign that I needed. And today as we dive into Luke chapter 11... We're going to see that sometimes God gives us a sign to make our faith in him even stronger. And this morning as we look at this uh, passage here in Luke 11, Jesus Christ is going to shine the light on the greatest sign that you'll ever see from God. In fact, it's the greatest sign that God has ever shown the world to prove that he is real and that Jesus Christ is Lord. So we're in Luke chapter 11. Say amen if you're there. Here we go, starting in verse 29. As the crowds increased, Jesus said, This is a wicked generation. It asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now one greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. May God bless us as we study his word today. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father, as, as some of our volunteers got together in the lobby just about 45 minutes ago, And we're praying for this service today. Lord, you reminded me once again of the privilege we have in the United States of America to worship you and to open and study your word. And Father, I thank you that we can have Bibles in hand today in this place. And I thank you that your word is living and active and you speak to us through your written word just as you spoke to the original readers 2,000 years ago. That blows me away. God, you had this word in mind for us today. Speak to our hearts. Help us not to be distracted. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Turn to the person next to you and say, are you ready for this one? I'm curious, how did they answer you? (laughs) Well, she's honest. 
So Luke chapter 11. Let's tackle this first part of the passage. Uh, Two weeks ago, uh, we looked at verses 14 through 28, the earlier part of this chapter 11. And in those verses, uh, you might remember what was said. If you don't, let's go back there together just so we can jog our memories a bit. In Luke 11, 14 through 16, we read, Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, By Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. So Jesus' critics could not deny the fact that Jesus had just healed this man that was demon-possessed, that was mute. He couldn't speak. And so they couldn't deny the fact that just an hour earlier, this man could not speak a single word, and now all of a sudden he was waxing eloquently with probably hundreds and thousands of words just pouring off his lips. This man had been mute, unable to speak for probably a few months, if not for a few years. It had been a long, long time that this guy had not been able to speak. And so Jesus' critics could not deny the fact Jesus had healed the guy. And so since they couldn't deny the fact, they used two sneaky tactics to try to discredit Jesus. The first thing they did, we talked about this two weeks ago. It's in that middle part of this chapter. They said, first of all, well, Jesus, yes, was able to drive out the demon because he, he has the power of Beelzebub, the, the power of Satan himself. It's by the power of Satan that he drove out the demons. And a couple of weeks ago when we tackled that passage, we saw that that was a ridiculous accusation. And Jesus proves that beyond a shadow of a doubt, that it was through the power of God, through the finger of God, that he was able to heal this man who had been demon-possessed. And then there was this second criticism. Others ignored the miracle and demanded a sign from heaven to prove that Jesus was who he claimed to be. In other words, okay, Jesus, yeah, that's nice. You you, uh, healed this uh, demon-possessed mutant. That's nice and all. But we need a sign from heaven to prove that you are who you claim to be, that you are the Christ, that you are the Son of the living God. We need a sign from heaven. Evidently, these critics in the crowd wanted Jesus to, to do like in Elijah's day where fire was called down from heaven, a sign, the fire coming from the clouds that he is from God. Or, or maybe like Moses, they wanted him to part the Red Sea. Or, or, or maybe they wanted him like in the days of Joshua and, and some of those uh, soldiers in ancient Israel to ask the sun to stand still and have the shadow maybe move back a few steps uh, from where it was. Uh, they wanted this sign from heaven, and Jesus responds to that criticism, to that request, to that demand in this passage we just read in Luke 11, verses 29 through 32. So once addressing the first one about Beelzebub somehow empowering Jesus, once he proves that to be a false accusation, now he's going to tackle the second one about believing that Jesus needed to give them a sign. Now, verse 29 tells us the crowds were increasing in size, and as they increased, Jesus felt that this was the right moment to tackle this sign from heaven request. So Jesus doesn't waste any time getting to his point. He says, quote, This is a wicked generation. It asks for a miraculous sign. Okay, so now Jesus is finally addressing this request, this demand, give us a sign from heaven. Finally, he addresses it, and he cuts to the chase. This is a wicked generation that asks for a miraculous sign. How many of you think that seems a little abrupt and maybe a little harsh? 
Am I alone on that? That sounds a little abrupt and harsh to me. How many of you are just being bashful? You really think that? You just don't like raising your hand in church because we might think you're Pentecostal. Anyone? Okay. So it seems abrupt to me. It it, it seems kind of harsh to me. I, I want you to imagine the scene. Hundreds, likely even thousands of people are surrounding Jesus as he's teaching. And these people are coming from miles and miles around to gather to see Jesus, to gather to hear him teach, to gather to see him perform miracles. And as they're coming in, he addresses the question about a sign from heaven by simply saying, this is a wicked generation that asks for a miraculous sign. Now, why on earth would Jesus think that it is so wicked, so evil for people in the crowd to ask for a sign from heaven? Well, Jesus answers that question in the verses that follow that we'll be looking at over the next few minutes. Jesus ends verse 29 by saying that no sign will be given to this generation except the sign of Jonah. So what on earth is the sign of Jonah? Luke doesn't tell us. But fortunately, this account is given to us by Matthew as well. If you were to flip over to Matthew 12, verses 39 and 40, here is Matthew recording a more detailed account of what Jesus taught on this particular day. And according to Matthew 12, 39 through 40, Jesus said this, A wicked and adulterous generation... Let's go ahead and read this together since it's on the screen. A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish... So the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So that's helpful, isn't it? So Matthew gives us that more detailed account of Jesus' teaching where he says the sign of Jonah is what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's a pretty good sign, don't you think? Or, to say it more simply, the sign of Jonah is Jesus himself. Jesus himself. Luke 11.30 makes this clear. Jesus says, For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. It had been almost 800 years since Jonah had stepped foot into Nineveh. And most of you remember the story. He's the most famous minor prophet in the Old Testament. God calls him to go to Nineveh and preach a message of repentance. And what does Jonah do? He bolts in the opposite direction. Remember, he boards that boat heading in the exact opposite direction. God told him to go due east, and instead he went due west. And as he's on that boat, what happens? The storm kicks up, and the timbers in that boat are being torn apart, and the waves are crashing. They're throwing their cargo overboard. And they know that they're going to die. And they find out that Jonah is the reason the storm came because he's running from God who created the seas and the skies and everything in the world. And so what do they do with Jonah? Give him the old heave-ho. Jonah goes for a dip, doesn't he? He goes for a dip. And after three days, he goes to Nineveh. Probably took him a few weeks to walk there, but I'm guessing the the fish spit him out closer to where Nineveh was than when the fish picked him up in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea there. And he goes and he preaches this message. Forty days, forty more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. Forty days, and Nineveh will be destroyed. 
that's not a very inspirational message, don't you think? Now, most of you would probably be scared to death if I ever asked you to step up here and preach a sermon for a half an hour on a Sunday morning. But even if you're scared to death to get up and speak to people in public, you probably look at Jonah's message and say, eh, I could do better than that. Forty more days and Nineveh will be... That was his message. And as we keep reading in Jonah chapter 3, we discover that the Ninevites believed Jonah's message and they repented from their sin. And it's really remarkable. We know that over 100,000 residents of Nineveh turned to the Lord. Over 100,000. The most successful prophet in the Old Testament, number-wise, with how many people turned to the Lord after his preaching. Remarkable. Now, what sign did God give to the Ninevites that Jonah's message was true and should be taken seriously? The sign God gave them was Jonah himself, was it not? Jonah was that sign. So I want you to imagine the scene. He's thrown overboard. And the storm is raging. And the waves are crashing. The sailors are reluctant, but they throw him overboard. And what would be the natural thing to do What would be natural for them to look at if they had just thrown him overboard? Are they going to turn around, go down below deck, and say, let's play a game of cards now? No, if they just threw him overboard, they're going to be watching to see what happens, right? So they throw him overboard, and they notice that after a little while, he sinks below the surface. Thirty seconds after he sinks below the surface, they're looking. Every eye on the ship is looking over the bow and the stern, trying to see Jonah. After 30 seconds, he doesn't resurface. After five minutes, he doesn't resurface. Long after the storm had calmed down, and they're still looking out miles ahead in every direction, over as as far as they could look from every angle of the ship, they're looking, and a day after he had gone below the surface, Jonah had not yet resurfaced. Let me ask you, medically, what do we call a man who is plunged below the water and has not resurfaced for a whole day. We call him dead, don't we? He was deader than a doornail. They just knew it. Five minutes, one hour, one day, he's a goner. Three days later, he gets spit up on shore. So you better believe that when he walked into Nineveh, uh, there had been some of the stories of what had happened out on the sea circulate. And this man walks into town. Make no mistake about it. He is a dead man walking. Jonah was the sign that reinforced the message. So when Jonah simply says 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned, it wasn't simply that the message was anointed by God. The actual messenger had been anointed by God. And you better believe that when he was in that stomach for three days and three nights, he didn't come out looking too pretty. He wasn't in a nice cozy cave like some of the paintings depict. He was in the belly of a fish being digested for three days and three nights. So when Jonah came out of that fish three days later, you better believe he had some scars on his hands and on his feet. It kind of reminds me of someone. Three days later, he comes out with scars on his hands and on his feet. And Jesus makes it clear that there will come a time when he is going to come from the heart of the earth three days later. And he too, even though he will have a resurrected body that can never perish, even though he is going to have a glorified body that can never decay, that glorified body will still mark the, have the marks and the scars on his hands and on his feet. So he could go to Thomas and say, put your fingers in my hands and in my side. 
and see that it is me. Jesus Christ is the sign from heaven. But he wasn't just going to be a sign after the resurrection. That was the sign of Jonah future. But the sign of Jonah present, right then and there, as he is standing in front of that crowd, the sign of Jonah present was, I am the incarnation of God on earth. I am the Son of God. And if you're asking for a sign from heaven, you're completely missing what's right in front of your noses because I myself am the greatest sign from heaven that God could ever give. Amen? Jesus was the sign from heaven. I like how William Barclay says it. The crowd could not see that the greatest sign that God could ever send was Jesus himself. That's why Jesus rebuked this generation and called it wicked. The greatest sign from heaven of God's love was right in front of their noses, and they missed it. The greatest sign from heaven of God's mercy and grace was right in front of them, and they were blind to it. It's as if God set the world's greatest buffet in front of poor, hungry people. God put it before these poor, spiritually hungry people. He gave them hometown buffet and wood grill barbecue. And he gave them a W buffet, the W spoon buffet. That's pretty good. I was there a few weeks ago. And he gives them In-N-Out Burger. And he gives them the best chicken parm in town, which, if you don't know, is over at Mama Carpino's in Apple Valley, best Italian in town, blows Olive Garden out of the water, but that's a tangent. He puts all of that in front of them. And the crowd is saying, can you give me a stale fruitcake? And and Jesus is like pulling out his hair and saying, what? I have just set before you the most glorious food, the most glorious buffet that this world has to offer, the best main courses, prime rib and lobster tail and everything you might ever dream of having, and the best appetizers and the best desserts. I've set it before you, and seriously, you're asking for stale fruitcake. And Jesus must be thinking, fruitcake is terrible. It's awful. Why would anyone eat that stuff? Have you ever tried year-old fruitcake? And you, you, you take the chisel and the mallet and try to cut through it, and you decide finally, you know, when it starts exploding on your workbench in the garage, you know what, I think I'm going to pass. That's what the crowd, in essence, is doing. They were asking for something that was so inferior to what was right in front of their eyes. And so Jesus says, you're missing what's right in front of you. You're asking for something that is so inferior. This is a wicked generation. And as our generation in 2019 ignores Jesus Christ and turns its back on him and chases after money and food and sex and popularity, Jesus, I believe, says the same thing to our generation today. This is a wicked generation. Sounds pretty pessimistic, but you know it's actually a blessing in disguise. The crowds surrounding Jesus needed to wake up and see that the greatest sign from heaven was right in front of them. And our generation needs to do the same. The sign that we've been looking for all this time that proves that God loves me and has a plan for my life and put me here on this earth at this point in time, at this place for a purpose That sign that we've been looking for has been right in front of our noses all the time. Our nation is so familiar with Christianity and so familiar with Jesus Christ that we have overlooked what's right in front of our noses. 
All along, Jesus has been the answer. And he's right here in front of us, waiting for us to reach out to him. Verse 31, Jesus says, The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this, the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now one greater than Solomon is here. The queen of the south was the queen of Sheba. Sheba was in South Arabia. I believe that's modern-day Qatar uh, there in the Middle East. And she was there in South Arabia, and she had traveled probably hundreds of miles to come to Jerusalem to visit Solomon because his wisdom was legendary. And she had all these questions she wanted to ask him. She wanted to tour his kingdom. She wanted to see if the, the rumors about Solomon were half as true as she had been led to believe. And so as she comes and tours the kingdom and Solomon answers every one of her questions, she says this in 1 Kings 10, 8, and 9. I don't want you to miss this. The queen of Sheba says, How happy your men must be, King Solomon. How happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Praise be to the Lord your God who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel. He has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. That's what the pagan queen of Sheba said about Solomon. And Jesus here in verse 31 basically says how awesome it would be if the crowd standing in front of him on that day would have said much the same thing. Let me take those words of the queen of Sheba from 1 Kings 10 and just replace them with a few words. And how wonderful it would have been if the crowd in front of Jesus would have said this to him on this day. Jesus, how happy your closest followers must be. How happy your disciples who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Praise be to the Lord your God who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel. He has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. How awesome it would have been if the crowd had recognized who was standing in front of them and said even just the same thing that a pagan queen had said about Solomon. The queen of Sheba was a pagan queen ruling over a pagan nation. And even she, Jesus says, will one day condemn God's people, the Jews, for not believing in Jesus. Because as great as Solomon's wisdom was, it could not compare to Jesus' wisdom, right? And look at verse 32. Jesus says, The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. So Jesus says, The men of Nineveh, even they will condemn this generation. And believe me, the men of Nineveh were cruel, wicked people. We've talked about this in the past. The Assyrians were known worldwide for their cruelty. And I won't get into all the gory details, just a quick little reminder of what the Ninevites like to do. They like to conquer other cities and nations. And when they would conquer a city, uh, they would torture their men. And once those men they felt were sufficiently tortured, they would chop off their heads. And they would do things like take their heads and shove them onto stakes and use them as human head totem poles to decorate their cities. They would take the heads of their enemies and hang them from trees and from city walls. They prided themselves in covering entire hillsides with the blood of their enemies. These were cruel, wicked people. And so when Jesus says, even the men of Nineveh will stand up and condemn this generation, that's huge, isn't it? Because the Ninevites, they repented 
when Jonah came to them and preached the message of repentance. These Ninevites were some sick, sick people, but the men of Nineveh will one day condemn God's people, the Jews, for not repenting after hearing Jesus' teaching. After all, as great of a preacher as Jonah may have been, his preaching could not compare to that of Jesus, could it? A couple blanks to fill in on your handout. Unbelief is a wicked sin. Unbelief is a wicked sin. We read in Hebrews 11:6, without belief, it is impossible to please God. Some of you are saying, I thought that verse said without faith. Yeah, it says that too, because belief, faith, trust, all the same word in the Greek language. Without belief, it is impossible to please God. The second thing we learn, especially from verse 32, from the example of the Ninevites in the days of Jonah, refusing to repent is also a wicked sin. So unbelief is a wicked sin. Refusing to repent is also a wicked sin. In Acts 3.19, Peter urges the crowd, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Sadly, most of the crowd in front of Jesus here in Luke 11 stubbornly refused to believe in Him and repent from their sins. And sadly, most people today do the same. Most people in America do the same. So what do we do about that as the church? Well, it's our job to go out to where the people are and share with them the good news of Jesus Christ. Remember what Romans 10 says. How can they believe if they have not heard? And how can they hear unless someone goes and shares the good news with them? And how can they hear the good news unless someone sends them? So what are we doing in three months? We're sending ourselves. We're leaving this airport where there's no activity on a Sunday for the most part and going to where the people are. We are going and sharing the good news. We're going and proclaim the word of God. And as we go, we believe that God is going to honor that. And as we go and... Go ahead. As we go and share the good news, we're going to give people an opportunity to believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior because without belief it is impossible to please God. We're going to give people an opportunity on a weekly basis to repent from their sins because without repentance there can't be forgiveness either. A heart has to truly change and turn to God. Most in that crowd were not ready to believe in Christ and repent. Most in our country aren't ready to believe and repent. But we go and reach every last one who will be willing. And maybe they're not willing today, but maybe they'll be willing next week. And maybe they're not going to be willing next week, but maybe they'll be willing, willing next month. And so we continue to share the good news as God brings in the harvest. It's our job to go. It's our job to go and share the light of the gospel. And Jesus talks more specifically about the light beginning in verse 33. Look at it with me, verses 33 through 36. Jesus says, No one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, he puts it on its stand so that those who come in may see the light. That makes sense. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are good, your whole body also is full of light. But when they are bad, your body also is full of darkness. So see to it then that the light within you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part is in the dark, it will be completely lighted as when the light of a lamp shines on you. 
The illustration Jesus gives in verse 33 is, is pretty clear. Verse 33 is not hard to understand. Verses 34 through 36, they're a little trickier to understand. I've read these verses probably 12 times at least in the past week, and I'm still wrestling with them a bit. Verses 34 to 36, a little tougher to understand. What is Jesus telling us? Well, I think we have a better chance of understanding what Jesus is telling us in verses 34 through 36 if we see a few other passages in the New Testament that talk about the light of God. The first is John 8:12. In John 8:12 Jesus says, "I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life." So that verse helps us understand these verses in Luke 11 a little better because these verses share with us that Jesus himself is spiritual light. Amen. Jesus himself is spiritual light. That helps us interpret verses 34 through 36 here in Luke 11. Another passage that helps us understand it is 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 6. This is one of my favorite stretches of Scripture in the whole New Testament. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 6. Uh, here's a, some excerpts from those four verses. Paul writes, Our gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age, a.k.a. Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So these verses teach us several things about light, and here's a couple of those things that it teaches us. Number one, it teaches us that the enemy of our souls, Satan, blinds the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing and understanding the truth. Okay? Satan puts a blinder over our eyes so we cannot spiritually see the truth. And what is that truth? That Jesus is the Christ and the Son of the living God and our only hope for salvation. And so those verses together, that Jesus is the spiritual light, Jesus himself is the light, and that Satan puts this spiritual blinder over our faces to keep us from seeing and understanding the truth, That's really insightful for grasping what Jesus is teaching the crowd here in Luke 11. Jesus is saying here in Luke 11 that when we trust in him as Lord and Savior, the veil that Satan has put over our spiritual eyes is stripped away. Amen? How many of you look back on your life before you accepted Christ and you remember the way that you used to think about church and about the Bible and about Jesus? Many of you can remember, you know what? I thought the Bible was outdated fairy tales. Some of you can remember that. Some of you remember thinking before you accepted Christ that church was absolutely 100% irrelevant and had no value to your life or the life of your family. Some of you can think back and say, you know what? There was nothing that church could offer me that I couldn't offer myself. There's nothing that Jesus could offer me that I couldn't offer myself. There's no wisdom in the Word of God that I couldn't find somewhere else. And then Jesus came and did what? He stripped the veil off your eyes. You reached out and received him as Lord and Savior. And he helped you to see what you couldn't see before. And so Jesus does that. Last month, when we were studying the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10, I shared with you an important insight that I want to remind you of again this morning. We were studying the parable of the Good Samaritan. I shared with you this insight. What you are 
determines what you see. And what you see determines what you do. So in the story of that Good Samaritan, one of the most famous parables that Jesus ever told, Jesus tells of that man who was robbed and beaten up and left half dead on the side of the road. And we know what happens later. The priest comes by and he passes by on the other side. And then the Levite sees him and he passes by on the other side. And we ask the question, why didn't they do anything about this man who had been beaten up and desperately needed someone to help him? Why didn't they do anything? And you take a step back, they didn't do anything because they didn't see him as Jesus saw him. They saw him as an inconvenience. They saw him as an unneeded distraction in their schedule that day, their precious schedule. They saw him as one who would keep them from being ceremonially clean to go back to the temple and do their normal routines. And so they see him as an inconvenience, they see him as a distraction, they see him as a problem, so they didn't do the right thing because they didn't see the right thing, and they didn't see the right thing because of who they were. What were they? They were selfish, self-centered, religious snobs. What you are determines what you see, and what you see determines what you do. And that's important to keep in mind here as Jesus is teaching about the light. He's teaching us that we oftentimes do not do the right thing because the light of Christ is not inside of us. And the reason the light of Christ is not inside of us is because we have not made that decision to put Jesus Christ in the driver's seat of our lives. We have not invited Jesus Christ to take away the blinders that Satan, and frankly not just Satan, but our own sinful selves have put over our eyes. Satan is to blame much of the time, but our own selves are to blame probably even more of the time. Our own selfish sin drives us into places where we choose to put spiritual blinders over us and not see the truth that God gives us right in front of our faces. This last Monday and Tuesday, I had the wonderful privilege of being over at the Victorville Courthouse after I was summoned for jury duty. So I stood up on Monday and shared a reason why I felt I wouldn't be a good candidate for the jury. And the judge says, basically, thanks but no thanks, sit back down. I came back the second day, and there were probably 60 of us in the room, and they called, what is it, 18 of us to come up in the jury box. And we were going to be peppered with some more specific questions. And so I was the fourth of 18 chosen to go up in the jury box. And so there I was on Tuesday, and I answered the questions. And on Tuesday afternoon, I answered the questions. And then the defense attorney came up, and I thought to myself, here we go. No defense attorney tends to like a pastor on a criminal trial. I've got a few ideas why that's the case, but it's just kind of reality. Usually, defense attorneys don't like pastors. So I figured he was going to give me the boot. And it turned out that I was number one on his list. He gave me the boot of all of his choices. He picked me first. So should I be flattered? But anyways, before I was kicked off the jury box on Tuesday afternoon, realizing that there was a really good chance I probably wouldn't be there through the trial, I didn't get to hear any of the evidence. But I looked out at several points at the defendant. There's a lady. She was sitting there. I'm not going to get into what the charges were, but there she was sitting there next to her attorney. And I did my best from the jury box to look at her and try to look into her eyes as best I could from that distance. 
And I found myself just having a conversation with the Lord. Did she do this? I found myself looking at her eyes and trying to figure out if there was truth or falsehood in those eyes. And, you know, I, I do not claim in any stretch to be able to look into someone's eyes and see the soul. If God gives some people that gift, well, maybe. I don't think he's given that to me. But I was trying my best as I was looking at that defendant, and I think I saw accurately some pain and some regret and some hurt. I saw her as an injured woman. Whether she committed those crimes that she was charged of, who knows? The jury can decide that. But I saw pain and hurt. And I got to thinking about this after studying this passage and thinking about it some more this weekend. And what came to mind is I know many of you have dealt with those with addiction in the past, with addictions to drugs and alcohol. And and several of you have mentioned in the past that you can look at someone's eyes and you can tell like that if they're dealing with addiction. Those of you who are around addicts on a regular basis can get very good at identifying this person is on something. There's just something different in their eyes. Something I might miss, but those of you experienced with such things don't miss. Sometimes we can look at someone's eyes and we see something that's not quite right. Most of you have probably been to a funeral or memorial service in the past where someone will say, you looked into her eyes and there was so much kindness in her eyes. She had the kindest eyes I've ever seen. Ever heard someone say that? Say about a man, he had the kindest eyes I've ever seen. And you can't put your finger on it, but it is true oftentimes that eyes are the window to the soul. So let me ask you, when someone looks into your eyes, what do they see? What do they see? And I don't want to get all hocus pocus, heebie-jeebie on you here. But what I want you to think about in closing is that if Jesus Christ has invaded your life, that if you have asked him to come into your life and fill every nook and cranny with his light and to expel the darkness, doesn't it stand to reason that the light inside of you should spill out of your eyes just a little bit? Shouldn't some people, when they look at you, see the kindness of Christ in your eyes? See the mercy and the grace of Christ in your eyes. And see in your actions, in your words, and even as you look at that person and make eye contact, that there is something different in that person. Light in the darkness. And I want to find out more about that. Sometimes God will use that as an opportunity to open up to someone about the truth of Jesus Christ. The good news that he is the Christ and the Son of the living God. And God will begin to take that veil off their eyes so that they can see what was right in front of them all along, that Jesus Christ is America's hope. And he's the hope of every person that you talk to this week. Lord, we love you. And we pray, O God, that you would help us to share your love, to share your kindness, your mercy, your truth, and your light with those living in darkness. As the scriptures say, behold, those living in darkness have seen a great light. And Lord, it's the light of Jesus Christ. 
Thank you, Lord, for giving us the opportunity today to share that light with each other. Anyone that may be in this room today or back and back in our children's classes, thank you, Lord, for giving us the opportunity to share your light today. And in these weeks and months to come, Lord, thank you for increased opportunities to share your light in Victorville. Lord, this is a city that you love. But this city of Victorville, Lord, as you know, has lots of problems. There's lots of people living in darkness, whether it's drugs or alcohol or gang activity or sexual perversion. Whatever it may be, O oh God, you can break through the darkness. We thank you that you can break through the darkness of depression, that you can break through the darkness of pride, that you can break through the darkness of anxiety, that you can break through the darkness of physical illness and terminal illness. Thank you that you can break through the darkness of lingering grief and pain. Thank you, Lord, for what you're going to do in the days to come. May we be your hands, your feet, your mouthpieces, and even your eyes to share your light with this valley. In Jesus' name. Let's stand right now as we go into our time of invitation. Most of you know the routine. We're going to sing a song, an inspirational song of invitation, and we invite you. If you need prayer, you come to the back. Alan's back there. You come to the front. We'd love to pray with you. Or if you're in this place today and you don't know for sure if your life was to end today, if you would go to heaven, we want this opportunity to share with you, to talk with you one-on-one about how you can put Jesus Christ in charge of your life in a brand new life with him in the driver's seat today. You come if you have a decision or prayer today.